and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. What do you do if you feel like your relationship is going the wrong way and fast? Or maybe it's been going the wrong way for a long time and you're not sure how to get things back on track. And on top of that, what do you do if you're the only one that seems to want to change anything in your relationship or to put that effort in? Is there anything you can do? And if there is, how do you do it in the most effective way so that you're not just spinning your wheels? Because my guess is that if you are interested in working on your relationship, that probably isn't new to you. It probably isn't dawning on you today. You've probably been trying over and over again. So how do you try something new and how do you do it in a way that will actually have the desired result? Well... On today's show, we have one of the world's foremost experts on bringing relationships back from the brink of separation and divorce. Her name is Michelle Weiner Davis, and she is the author of the best-selling books Divorce Busting, The Sex-Starved Marriage, and The Divorce Remedy, the proven seven-step program for saving your marriage. She's been on all kinds of TV shows and radio, runs workshops for um, normal people and therapists who I guess are hopefully normal people too. And she is here with us today on Relationship Alive to chat about the best ways to bring your relationship back from the brink. And if you're not at the brink, that's good too. The strategies that she talks about are perfect for ensuring that your relationship stays on the right track. We are going to talk about a lot in today's episode, so if you'd like to download the detailed show guide, you can do that by visiting neilsatin.com slash busting, B-U-S-T-I-N-G, as in divorce busting, or you can simply text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I'll send you a link to uh, the page where you can download this show guide as well as all of the other show guides for the Relationship Alive podcast. Pretty cool. In any case, we have a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. Michelle Weiner davis thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you, Neil. I'm really excited about having a conversation with you about helping people have better marriages. So thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. And uh, and maybe we start there, um, although I want to give my audience a chance to, to find out more about you and how you came to this work. But let's just start with that question of marriage versus relationship, because so many people today aren't getting married or and they're they're with long term partners, but they're not actually taking that step. So how much is your work dependent on people actually being married versus just we're in this relationship and we're trying to make it work? Well, I, I have written my book um, with married couple or my books, I should say, um, with married couples in mind. But that said, Neil, I, it's absolutely the truth that the principles that I write about um, are applicable to any kind of relationship. And you're, you're right that more and more people are um, either putting off getting married to uh, later stages in their lives or not getting married at all. Um, and my, the passion that I have for helping people make their relationships work 
is the same whether they have a legal document or whether they're, you know, cohabitating um, or just even in, in serious, meaningful relationships. Because um, my feeling is that um, what when, when people end a relationship so often, uh, it, it has less to do with the merits or lack thereof of that relationship and more to do with the fact that they don't have the necessary tools and skills to make the relationship work. So when they leave that relationship, married or not, they often find themselves floundering in future relationships. So I'm just really adamant and passionate about teaching people the skills that they need to uh, love the one they're with, married or not. Yeah, yeah, I could see how... If you are married, maybe that makes it just like ever so slightly more difficult to leave, Mm -hmm. but maybe not because we've become in some respects a very um, divorce, uh, I don't want to say divorce happy because that doesn't really, uh, that's not really a true representation, but it seems like people are certainly quicker to divorce now than probably at any point in history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's well, not like being married necessarily. There, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, the divorce rate really uh, skyrocketed. And then I think um, after maybe, you know, 20 years, uh, maybe a little bit more of looking at the results of rampant divorce and disposable marriages, people finally figured out Um, it's not all that it's cracked up to be and that in many cases it creates new and unintended problems. And so actually in the early 80s, although I don't think it's anything to wave a flag about, the divorce rate has actually uh, leveled off. And um, although I do think there is a, uh, what I would call a recent um, interest in people uh, finding happiness, um, which may or may not include working on their marriage. But nonetheless, I, you know, I, I, I really do want to say that, um, thankfully, I, the divorce rate has leveled off. That is good. And, and I think that the statistic, whether you're divorced, whether you're married or simply in a relationship, that, that people who are in relationship with others tend to be happier, healthier, have less stress in their lives, um, so certainly promoting the cause of those skills that are required to stay yeah. together. It's about an overall quality of life. Absolutely. They, they even live longer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so great. So let's just say that we're going to be talking today about skills that are great for, for you, whether you are married or whether you're just in a long-term relationship and wanting to ensure that it lasts. Um, and even if you're single and just listening, these will be the kind of skills that, again, you'll want to implement when you're in relationship um, as a preventative to like keep things going on the right track. Yeah, and I guess one more thing I'd like to add on to that, Neil, is that, you know, so often when we're unhappy in our current relationship or marriage, um, it's easy to blame the person sitting next to us. And so often what I also find is that people leave these relationships, and if they don't really learn how 
they've contributed to the problems that they're experiencing and they don't really gain insight as to the role that they play, then when they leave the relationships, they take their relationship habits with them when they go. And again, they find themselves repeating the same or similar mistakes in future relationships, which speaks to the fact that although, uh, you know, first marriages end in divorce approximately uh, 41%, 42% of the time, but statistics regarding second and subsequent marriages are significantly higher. Um, so we're back to what do you do about this? And to me, the what do you do about this is learn everything you can learn about how to have a good and healthy and loving relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting dance here because there are these skills. And I love how you talk about this in your, in your book that you can only get through relating to another person. It's not mm -hmm. like, um, it's not like you can go home and like sort of do all this work for yourself and then suddenly you've magically figured out how to actually relate to another person and, and have a successful relationship. Right. You know, it's not like you can figure it out uh, meditating on the top of a mountain. Um, you, you know, here's the other catch about all of this. Um, we're not born knowing how to have healthy, loving relationships. When anyone who's ever had a kid knows that when that little baby is born, they are the center of the universe. And if you take that philosophy into adult relationships. It doesn't work all that well. And, you know, the place that we learn how to have loving relationships is by watching our adult caregivers. And quite honestly, many of us have not had exactly really great role models. Um, so we didn't learn how to communicate very well. We didn't learn that conflict is inevitable, but how do you work through it and get to the other side? We didn't necessarily learn about um, what are healthy ways of showing affection and, and um, tenderness and caring. And, and even if you were you know, fortunate enough to have had that in your life, you may choose someone who didn't. And then how do you negotiate those differences? And so, you know, fortunately, um, in the last, I, you know, maybe decade or so, um, we have learned so much about the skills that are required to have healthy, successful relationships. And I'm here to tell you that these skills are, they're teachable, they're, they're learnable, and um, I, I think no one who is serious about having a great relationship should be without this kind of information at their fingertips. So I'm so glad that you're doing, you know, the kind of work you're doing, Neil, so that you can spread the word about the importance of learning how to make it work. Yeah, yeah, I feel it's so important. And thank you. Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. um, and diving deeper into that. Uh, one thing that I really like about your approach is that it's very empowering, particularly when there's only one person in the relationship who's taking an active interest in the betterment of the, of the relationship, or at least, you know, from the outside, that's how it looks. And I think it's like a pretty common problem that couples come to me or to therapists with is this, like, my partner isn't interested. And ideally, both people 
are interested and both people show up and and want to be there and making it better. Um, but could you talk a little bit about what you've seen um, in terms of people who take that on by themselves? Maybe you can give some hope to uh, listeners who are hearing this conversation and thinking like, okay, but what what can I do? Like if we're really headed down, like we're on the rocks or we're headed down the wrong course, is there really something that I can do on my own? Well, it's so great that you're asking that question because I really, um, there's, there's some, I have incredible colleagues out there who are doing wonderful work with couples, um, couples who want to strengthen their marriage and co- couples who have marriages that are truly teetering on the brink of divorce. But what I think sets my work apart from many of my colleagues and friends is the emphasis that I have in working with the one person who truly wants to make the marriage work when the other person, A, isn't too sure, or B, is sure that they don't want to be in this marriage any longer. Um, And one of the reasons that I developed this approach, and I kind of refer to it as it takes one to tango, um, is because the fact of the matter is most divorces are unilateral decisions. One person wants it and the other one does not. And I think when that happens, the person who does not, the person who does not want to stay in the marriage usually isn't willing to go for help. Or if they are willing to go for help, they're faced with a situation where most professional therapists don't exactly know how to handle it when couples have diametrically opposed goals for the relationship. In fact, what generally happens is most therapists tend to align themselves with the person who wants out and helps the person who wants to save the marriage to accept the inevitable. And I stood back and looked at what I considered to be the unfairness of this situation because it is truly, you know, taking sides and it's uh, promoting the idea that this divorce is inevitable. What else can you do except to help this other person resign themselves to it when, in fact, in, in my work um, and in my life, I have discovered that um, – It's absolutely the case that you can affect change single-handedly in a relationship, but you have to be the one who's willing to make the first step. You can't just wait for the other person to change. And I can certainly explain to you uh, some more of that uh, technique or approach, Neil, but I'm hoping I'd like to... Uh, explain to you why I consider myself a psychotic optimist. Yes, please. (laughs) You know, know, helping just the one person who wants to keep the marriage alive. Um, So, you know, I always say when I do professional workshops, I ask the group of people in the audience whether there is anyone sitting there who chose their career by just throwing a dart, like as if it were a random decision. And everybody laughs because the truth is most people um, really are passionate about what they're doing because it's touched them in some way personally. And that is certainly the case in my life. Um, I like to think about the fact that I grew up in in an East Coast version of the Walton family. Um, You know, I had 
two parents who um, really loved me, two parents who never fought. I have two brothers with whom I fought but loved very much. And we had a very close-knit, extended family with whom we spent, you know, holidays and weekends, and we went on family vacations. And there, you know, I'll never be lying on a therapist's couch complaining about my childhood because it was really pretty wonderful. Until one day, I was a senior in high school, and my mom called my two brothers, myself and my dad in for a family meeting, which is not the norm in my family, where she proceeded to tell us that she had been very unhappy for the 23 years of their marriage. Now, mind you, um, I mentioned that my parents never fought. So that statement came as a complete shock to all of us. And she also said that because she's been so unhappy, she's been to a therapist. And the therapist, after working with her, um, helped her to decide that what she needed to do was to end her marriage and to go find herself. And I sometimes now jokingly say I'd like to go find this therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with those words, Neil, I, I was, you know, 16 or 17 years old. What I understood in my, you know, adolescent mind was the most obvious fact that my parents' marriage was going to end. And it was incredibly devastating. But what I didn't yet get, because I couldn't because of my developmental stage in life, was the um, insidious ways that this divorce would end my family life as I knew it forever. I was being launched off to college and my nest was falling apart. And what I hadn't realized was that Behind all those warm family memories, my mother was the hub of the, of the wheel. And when she decided to divorce, she also resigned from that position and nobody else stepped up to the plate to take over. Mm. And so things just changed dramatically. And it was so disorienting and hurtful. And I, I, all, I also say that divorce, my experience has been is that divorce is forever And what I mean by that, I'm not talking about, you know, that it happens, the pain happens again and again and again. And I'm not just talking about intergenerationally, you know, that, you know, the children get divorced and the grandchildren get divorced. What I'm talking about here are the life events that occur over the years, whether they're birthdays or holidays or weddings or funerals or you go on and you name it, births of children where if your family um, is able to get together, and, and a lot of times they can't or they don't, but even if they do, they're, they're bittersweet occasions when they should be pure joy. And so, you know, it's true that other people do better jobs perhaps than my family did post-divorce, but one of the things that's happened to me since that fateful day when my mom announced that she wanted a divorce was that it's made me incredibly uh, passionate about helping anyone or everyone who passes in my path or is in my path to really um, take a close, hard look at alternatives before making um, a decision to end their marriage and if they have children to end their their families. And, um, you know, I always say I didn't choose my career. My career chose me. 
Um, and it, in a way, it's been very healing uh, for me to be able to have contact with so many people teetering on the brink of divorce and to have them not only reconsider, but also reconcile. Yeah, wow, such a powerful um, story. And, and I have to say, like, as you were talking about it, along with just really relating to what you were describing about how your family split and a, and a very similar thing happened to me. My, my folks split when I was a senior in high school. Wow. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the way that that created a lack of home and, and, um, really kind of launched me into the world on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are many ways looking back that I find myself grateful for that. And at the same time, sure, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't tend to reflect on that aspect of it so much, but it is also a source of, of pain for sure. Um, and then also thinking about my own divorce and, um, you know, you've, if you, listeners on the show have heard me chat about the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't hide the fact that I was married and am divorced and have two young children who are amazing. And, um, despite the fact that I'm now in an amazing relationship and a lot of the work that I'm doing now is because of how well matched I am in my current relationship. Mm -hmm. at, at the same time, um, you are right that, that, um, Divorce wasn't really a solution to, to many of the problems. And one mm -hmm. of those being that because I'm, I'm connected through my children to my former spouse. Um, I wish there were a word that was as good as was been for wives, yeah. wives, you know, but, <laughs> um, but because we're still connected through our children, like uh, we're always going to be a part of each other's lives in some fashion. Um, so, um, so I can see, and of course I'm passionate about, about helping people not go through that pain. And, and even though I'm in a great place now, mm -hmm. when I think back on what that process was like and, um, and that was actually when I first encountered your work, um, Michelle was when I myself was in this moment of like, what do I do? And how, what do I do about my, about my relationship? And, uh, and yeah, when I think back on that, it was horrible. And I, I definitely wouldn't wish that on, on anyone. And had I had the skills then that I now have, mm -hmm. um, it, it might have gone differently. Hard to say, you know, really yeah. hard to say. Um, and, and you raise an important point, Neil. I think, you know, my approach isn't that divorce is bad or immoral. I don't come at it from a religious perspective. I just... Feel and, and some and some marriages do need to end. So I, having said that, though, um, I, I just really feel that there are so many divorces. I don't know whether yours was one of them or not, but that are unnecessary because so many problems that feel insurmountable really are solvable. Um, so that's been you know my message. That's been my philosophy, and that. You know, I, I think you know, I referred to it as my psychotic optimism becomes contagious in the work that I do with couples or individuals, which is back to full circle to what you were asking me about. Um, and, you know, again, how this I distinguish so much of what I do because um, very often uh, just getting the one person who truly wants to make the relationship work 
Um, and divorce remedy, divorce remedy that my book is written for the one person who wants to save the marriage when their spouse is not willing to participate. So, you know, maybe I should um, explain a little bit about how that's even possible. Definitely. Um, okay. Um, and the one question I had was maybe to start with uh, to start with the fear, because I think the fear that every individual has when they're about to undertake that, or when they're in the middle of it, is what if I what if my partner never changes, and what if like it's always on me, like it's it's going to always be on me to to overlook this or that or to like set the set the course straight and like I don't want to be the only one responsible for keeping this relationship together or holding or keeping us on on the right track so (laughs) you're right well I'm laughing because when when I'm doing workshops either for therapists or for the general public I always say that inevitably there'll be somebody when I explain that here's this program that you can use here are some strategies that you can do that can really turn things around in your relationship inevitably there'll be someone who says why do I have to do all the work why do I have to be the one to change and so I do have an answer for that you will never ever be the only one to do all the work. You will never, ever be the only one who's changing. All that I really am suggesting is that people um, learn a new approach and they tip over the first domino and they become a catalyst for change in their relationship. And so often, you know, we'll be talking, I'm sure, more details about this, Neil, but so often the changes are either immediate or soon to follow a new approach. And the only question that that reluctant person then asks themselves is, why did I wait so long? (laughs) (laughs) Because the truth is, you know, usually the person who asked the question has been doing an enormous amount of work. It's just that the, the strategies and the approaches they've been using haven't been working. So they're burned out. And that's understandable. And I'm all for stopping what you're doing that isn't working and thinking of something entirely new and different and more productive in order to trigger positive change in the relationship. So uh, I'm really going to put a word out there to anybody who is thinking about um, the possibility of taking the initiative to make things better in the relationship, even if they, you know, there are no guarantees, but even if they're um, a little cautious about whether it can really make a difference or not, you have got nothing to lose and everything to gain about trying a new approach. Yeah, and this new approach is, I think, important to to bring up because so many times people feel like, as you mentioned, they're doing all this work, they're 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 trying everything, and nothing is really having that lasting effect. And I I think that part of what the uh, the steps that you outline in divorce remedy are really good for is not only highlighting like how. Um, what you're, yeah, of course, what you're doing, like the same thing over and over again, that's, that's not actually working. Like if, if you have to do that in order to keep everything together, quote unquote, then what you're doing is actually not having the desired effect. Um, cause the desired effect is probably to have a relationship where both people are showing up. Like that's what everyone would love. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. your steps, I think, point people towards goals. And, and we'll talk about this, that, that, um, 
that make what they actually want really real and and measurable mm-hmm. um so that it's not just this kind of amorphous like i'm trying i'm tried tried everything you know i'm i'm always t- talking to my partner about the things i want to improve you know those sorts of tryings mm-hmm. um versus um versus strategies that actually move the couple in the direction of a healthier, more positive tone to how they interact with each other. Right. Well, you know, maybe we should go through uh, what some of the steps are that are outlined in Divorce Remedy. And then, and that really uh, can be used for one or two people working on a relationship. And then there's a particular strategy that I call the last resort technique, which is specifically designed for people who are in the 11th hour in their marriages or their relationships, and they definitely don't have the support of their spouse, um, and and still there are things that they can do to begin to turn things around. In fact, there are things they're doing that are probably backfiring. So, mm. uh, But maybe we should start with uh, the steps that anyone, whether they're in a relationship that is falling apart completely or they just really want to make it better, um, can use. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, yeah, so step one, um, let's do one and two together. Uh, okay. One is start with a beginner's mind and two is to know what you want. Exactly. Yeah. So... You know, in starting with a beginner's mind, um, of what I was thinking about there is that, you know, people have so many misconceptions um, about marriage. And um, a lot of these misconceptions get in the way of them uh, doing what they need to do to make things better. Um, for example, uh, I have a lot of people who say to me, that you know, we we um, have so many different di- disagreements, and we're so different that we're we're just mismatched. We're not meant to be together. When the research really tells us, for example, that people who are in long-term happy marriages are no more similar to one another than people who divorce. But there is one difference in people who make it over the long haul, and that is that they learn how to deal with their differences. And so if you have this mythical thinking that you have to be a clone of your partner in order for your relationship to work, um, you're you're definitely going to get stuck. So that's an example of uh, the kind of misconception that so many people have. Um, or sometimes people say to me, um, I don't know what happened, but I just fell out of love. Well, guess what? You don't just fall out of love in the same way that you might fall off a ladder or fall out of a tree. It doesn't just happen. When I get people's marital histories and I hear about the effort and the energy and the attention and the care that they gave their relationship in the early stages um, as compared to what's happened over time for a variety of reasons, there's a marked difference. And so one of the things that I help people do is to figure out what they were doing differently during times in their lives and their relationships when their relationships were working better. Because so often that's a formula um, for success in terms of implementing a lot of those same strategies, those actions, those behaviors and making the relationship work. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. Um, You know, when you ask people about the early part of their, either their dating relationship or sometimes even their early marriages, you know, they, 
they spent a lot of time together. They spent time talking. They spent time touching. Uh, they spent time laughing at each other's jokes. Um, they really made each other a priority. Priority, And then, you know, as time goes on, uh, they become uh, busy in their own lives. They have children. And all of a sudden, the relationship becomes on, uh, is on the back burner. Well, and they fall out of love. It didn't just happen. It, it, you, in order to maintain those feelings of love and passion and connection, you have to be intentional and you have to do what has worked for you in the past. That's just an example. But in terms of starting with a beginner's mind, more as it relates to how people make positive changes in their relationship, um, one of the basic concepts we've already touched on, and, and that is that it really does take one to tango. When I do workshops, I ask people, how many people have heard the expression, you can't change other people, the only person you can change is yourself, and all the hands go up in the audience. And so what I say at that point is, here's the truth, you can change other people, but you must begin by changing your own actions first, because relationships are such that if one person changes, the other person will change in response. And I often give an example, Neil, out of my um out of my own marriage. Um, and I say to people, uh, you know, look, if you were with somebody that you love and you're having a really great evening together, I mean, let's say you're having a great conversation and you're feeling really close and connected. And then for some very bizarre reason, you want the evening to go downhill could you think of something that you could say or do that would affect a change single-handedly by your doing so? And everybody starts to chuckle because they know that if they bring up a certain topic or if they you know, shoot their partner a certain look or if they criticize their partner in a certain way, they know that they could single-handedly affect change. Everyone understands this concept when it comes to affecting a negative change. But what I say to people is freeze that image because I believe that everybody has within him or her positive change buttons. You just have to know how to find them and then you have to know how to activate them. So, you know, again, you know, one of the examples I mentioned that I give is that if my husband and I are, I, I know exactly how to affect change in my relationship with him. If, if we are, for example, um, in, in a car and we're having a really great time and we're really connecting and I want to, um, for some very strange reason, affect a change in that, all I have to do is make a comment on how he's driving. <laughs> it works every time. It, it actually worked last week. I tried it again. <laughs> it works. And so, you know, and now I say I don't even need to tell him that he's driving badly. All I need to do is white knuckle, you know, the, the, uh, the, the hand holder thing on the right side of the passenger seat or use the imaginary brake as on the passenger side of the seat. And he can see me doing it and he gets mad at me and the whole evening is, goes downhill immediately at that moment. And so what I say to people, look, the same dynamic in reverse works, that we have to be able to find those positive change buttons. And when we do, and when we become more intentional and more mindful, we can trigger positive change in our partners. So that's one concept that I 
really want people to embrace that it not only is possible, but it's probable that if they take, um, if they approach things differently in a way that they haven't before, they're bound to get different results. So that's the first step. Yeah, that just, that brings up a question for me, which is, um, and I think it ties into what you were saying about trying things differently, because I can imagine sitting in that situation and thinking, well, the things that used to work that get that got a positive response in my partner, they don't seem to work anymore. Or when I try them, in fact, they have like the opposite effect. So I do something nice that used to feel so special to them. And it's just it seems to be pushing them away or so like the skids are greased for those negative responses, but not so much for the positive. Um Well, I think part of what has to happen is that people have to um, adopt a more trial and error philosophy to, to what they're doing when they're interacting with their spouses, that it's possible people do change over time. And it's possible that what has worked in the past isn't going to work in the present, which is clear data that it's time for something new and different, that you can't just operate off of what you knew has worked in the past necessarily. It's time for a change. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to get to that in step number four. Um, right. So let's, let's go back then to, uh, and you, I think you were about to move ahead to step number two, which is know what you want, followed by step number three, which is ask for what you want. So, exactly. Well, the, you know, one other thing I want to just add very quickly is, and, and this has been, um, a, a trademark of my work as well. Um, I, it's very much based on a way of working in therapy called solution-focused therapy. And what uh, people who practice this approach have learned that um, traditional, the traditional concept of if you want to solve a problem, you have to you know, do um, an introspective journey into the past to understand why you're having this problem, gain some insight into your past, and therefore that insight will lead to change. And there's been a lot of evidence that you can become very insightful about why you're doing what you're doing, about how you're repeating patterns in the past, and it won't necessarily help you to figure out what to do differently in the present or in the future. And so my approach is really based on taking a, a, a it really encouraging people to stop doing what I call cause hunting, analyzing to death who's to blame or how this happened or why this happened, and instead take a look at more concretely and clearly, what are you doing? How is it working? Where do you want to be? Which is, of course, what I'm about to talk about. And what are the concrete steps you need to take to be there next week or next month or three months from now? So in regards to goal setting, um, so often, Neil, when I ask people in my practice, what is it that you're hoping to change? They don't tell me what they're wanting to change. They tell me what they're unhappy about. So a wife will say, my husband can't communicate. Well, that is not a goal. And so I try to help her to change her complaint or her unhappiness or her dissatisfaction into a concrete 
um, a concrete goal-oriented statement because if she doesn't have a goal, she's not going to find a solution. There's a saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And so to start off with, what I like to do is to help people uh, state their goals, not in terms of the uh, what isn't happening or what they're unhappy about, but more rather um, what they'd rather have happen instead. So for this woman who said that, um, her, well, I'll use a different example uh, for a woman who says that her husband is so critical um, and, and that's how uh, she doesn't want him to be so critical. So I help her to say, what she'd rather have him do instead by asking the question, when he stops being so critical or when he's less critical, what will he be doing instead? And then she tells me, I would really like it if occasionally he would compliment me, if he told me that he appreciated my making dinner or that he really appreciated how I was helping to support the family or that he thought that I looked great in a certain dress that I was wearing, I would feel like I died and went to heaven. That would mean so much to me. So instead of saying he complains too much, she should be saying and thinking, um, I'd really like it if my husband were a bit more complimentary. The other thing that I help people do is to describe their goals in action-oriented terms. So again, when I ask people goals in my practice, they'll say things like, I want more love, I want more respect, I want more connection. Um, and by the way, these words sound as if they're packed with meaning, but the truth is what it means to me may be different than what it means to you, Neil, or what it means to the person listening in uh, on us today. And so I want to unpack the meaning by asking an action-oriented question, which I do. So if a woman says my husband isn't can't communicate, I want to know when he starts communicating better, specifically, what will he be doing and saying that will clue her in that he's a better communicator? And so she'll say things like, I would love it when I walk through the door if he would just ask me how my day was. I would love it when I talked to him that he didn't have this glazed over look in his eyes and instead he would add something or say something about the things I'm talking to him about. I would love it if he would ask me questions, more questions, to really ferret out how I'm feeling about something. So again, I'm looking for actions that you can see or hear on a videotape. Um, and I help people to really translate these, like I said, these vague words of I don't, I want you to be more loving or respectful or kind or caring into the actual specific behaviors that you are, uh, that, that you would love to see happen in your relationship. And then finally, in terms of goal setting, um, too often people set goals that are so grandiose, they're just simply not attainable. And so I like for people to, to break their goals down into small doable steps, things that they could accomplish perhaps in a week or so. So for example, I remember um, years ago working with this woman who found out that her husband had two affairs. And when I asked her you know, what her goal was, she still wanted to stay married, but she, and she said her major goal was that she wanted to have complete trust and faith in her husband again. Well, let's face it. After you just find out that your husband had two affairs, you are not going to have complete faith and trust in your spouse anytime real soon. So I knew that was too big a goal. And at least she had the optimism, though, at that point. 
Uh, she did. And I was, I was, you know, and just the fact that she knew she wanted to stay married. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, but I asked her, and this is, this is what your listeners need to be asking themselves if their goals are too grandiose. What will be the very first sign that you're moving in the right direction? What will be the very first thing that happens that will tell you that you're on the right track? And so for this woman, for example, what she said was, I'm not even talking to my husband right now. I don't even want to be in the same room with him. So I imagine that maybe a first goal would be that we would sit down and begin to talk about what happened. Even if the conversation doesn't go very well, it shows that we're beginning to whittle away at the, the pain and work our way through this process. So that was a more doable goal. So again, the goals need to be positively stated, not complaining. You need to have a re- request for a change, not a complaint, because complaints lead to defensiveness And um, people are much less likely to oblige and they need to be action oriented so that people know what it is specifically that you're wanting and you need to make sure that it's doable. And so the next step, of course, and and I'm going to preface this by saying some people have already done this and it doesn't always work, but the next step is to ask for what you want. Um, You know, so, you know, if I had to, describe what I think is one of the most common patterns in the relationships when couples, when I do work with couples, and I do, these days, Neil, I do two-day intensives uh, with couples. I don't work hourly anymore because I really like to kind of sink in and get to the bottom of things and find solutions in this intensive short period of time. But one of the most common patterns that I find in people who uh, visit me is that they may have initially, early on in their relationship, asked for what they want or told their partners um, how they would like things to change. But when their partners haven't responded in a positive way and given them what they've really needed and wanted, so many people stop asking. They just give up. In a way, they they just... Um, They throw in the towel and they live for years not letting their partners know what's working and what isn't working. So once you develop a clear solution-oriented goal, it's important that you stay the course and ask for it in a clear, loving sort of way. Do you you have any guidance for that clear, loving sort of way Um, and maybe just as use as an example one of the examples that you've already used like so how would for instance the the woman who's decided well i just want to be able to um talk about what happened you know the cheating i just like we're not even talking now so i just want to be able to talk about it um because so often i think we do make those requests and it ends up triggering our partner they like no matter what they're they're in that sort of defensive place um yeah so do you have hints for how to make requests in ways that will be more well received well let's let's move away from the infidelity example because that's a whole other um you know ball. yeah it's okay yeah but i i think so often when people ask for what they want. First of all, again, I'm going to repeat this because it happens all the time. People generally don't ask for it by asking for what they want. They, they talk to their spouses about what they're unhappy about, what they're miserable about, what they're not getting. That's first of all. 
Um, right. Second, or they might say, I want I want you to communicate with me as opposed to like, when you come home and come through the door, could you just like ask me how my day was? That sort exactly, of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the problem with that. If people aren't specific in terms of giving action-oriented feedback to their partners, so often their partners have no clue what they're meaning by it. And they're trying. They're actually trying. But they're trying in a way that doesn't work. And therefore, there are two shifts passing in the night. But the person who's been trying feels I'm unappreciated. I'm never recognized for what I do. So why should I even bother? So... Yes, it's important to be specific and concrete. But in addition, so often these requests come out in the midst of an argument. So timing is really important when you're going to have a heartfelt conversation uh, with your partner about what you're, you're needing from him or her. You have to make sure that it isn't in the middle of an argument, that the kids aren't tugging at your sleeves, that you know the, your spouse isn't starving for dinner, that your spouse didn't just get home from work. I mean, timing is really important. And and by the way, you know, you it helps to preface it by saying something that is conciliatory or loving. For example, saying you know maybe. Um, you know, I know you don't mean to do this and, and I know you, you know, I haven't been open with you about how this has been affecting me, but I'd really like it if in the future, um, you know, when we go out with other couples, you make more of an effort to include me in the conversation as opposed to saying, you know, you monopolized that conversation last night. You didn't give me a chance to talk. You never made eye contact with me. But instead, give your partner the benefit of the doubt and ask for what you need in a loving way. Yeah, and if you're the partner listening to this, I think that was a, a great example too of how you might say, um, I would love it if you would include me in the conversation more. And I think that's a perfect opportunity for a partner's curiosity to kick in and say, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what, what would it, if I were including you in the conversation more, what would I be doing um, exactly. to get, at the nitty gritty of, of what those changes would really look like in practice. Exactly. And, uh, you know, hopefully the response would be, well, maybe you'd um, throw more of the conversation my way. You'd ask me a question or, you, again, you'd comment on something that I say rather than immediately changing the subject. So giving concrete examples like that, I think, really helps to, um, you know, give give your partner the opportunity to, to please you um, once they know what they're aiming for. Um, yeah. So now, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that almost this this flavor of being a, an experimenter, like not doing like trying new things and, and not doing the same thing over and over again. And that seems especially relevant um, and an apt metaphor, considering the next couple steps. Um, right. Step four being stop going down cheeseless tunnels. <laughs> right. So, well, I should, for anyone listening who doesn't know what a cheeseless tunnel is, so there's, you know, I, I remember as a psychology major, um, you know, having to do experiments with 
rats when I was uh, in graduate school and um, about how rats learn. And so imagine this maze and it's got five tunnels and you've got a rat at the beginning of one of those tunnels and you take a piece of cheese and you put it down uh, tunnel number four. And initially the rat goes up tunnel number one, notices there's no cheese, comes back down, two, no cheese, comes back down, three, no cheese, comes back down, four, cheese, bingo. And if you keep putting the cheese down tunnel number four consistently, initially the rat will explore the other tunnels before getting to four, but it'll learn pretty quickly that the cheese is down tunnel number four. And then if you switch the experiment and you take the cheese from four and put it down tunnel number two, the rat will go up tunnel four, no cheese, come back down, tunnel number four, no cheese, come back down. And it may do it a few more times, but eventually this rat will begin to explore the other tunnels because it's after the cheese. Now it's said that the only difference between rats and human beings is that human beings will go down tunnel number four for the rest of their lives <laughs> because they'll tell themselves, I know that the cheese is there. And you know, in a, in a more practical, uh, maybe human example of this is that you know, in life when something happens, when there's a problem, Generally, people, uh, proactive people, will do something to fix it. They'll, they'll intervene in some way. And if it works, it's great. Life goes on. But if it doesn't work, instead of saying to themselves, you know, that really didn't work out all that well. I better do something entirely different. What most people say to themselves is that didn't work. I guess I have to try harder, do it one more time with feeling, really get emphatic about this. <laughs> And, you know, there's a saying, Neil, that I'm sure you're familiar with. If you do the same old thing and uh, expect different results, you, you know, that's called, that's the definition of insanity. But the right. truth is, if you do the same old thing over and over and over again, you do get different results. Things actually get worse. And the classic example that I give to people about that, uh, that I think everyone understands is, you know, I, I used to work with families a great deal. And when parents discovered that they had a sneaky teenager on their hands, you know, what's the most logical thing for a, a parent of a sneaky teenager to do? They start to spy on their kid. But when the kid discovers that their parents, that his parents are spying, what does he do? He goes underground. He gets sneakier. Now, at that point, the parents should be able to say to themselves, what we're doing isn't working. In fact, it's making matters worse. But in truth, what parents generally do is they up the ante and they become even better at spying on the kid and going underground about their spying, which of course makes the kid even sneakier. And in marital relationships and intimate relationships, you know, one of the classic examples of this is let's say a wife who wants to um, spend more time talking uh, verbally with her husband. And so she tells him, has this, you know, heart to heart with him and tells him, I'd like for us to talk more. And he has, he, he goes along with it and he has a conversation with her. And so he's feeling like he's done his job and she's feeling satisfied. But the next day at the breakfast table, he, since he did his job, he picks up the newspaper and he starts reading. And she says to him, I, I thought I just talked to you yesterday about the importance of us communicating more. Well, now he feels her anger. So he starts to withdraw. 
And the more he withdraws and pulls away and maybe even leaves the table, the more she pursues him. And the more she pursues him, the more he withdraws. And the more he withdraws, and I think you get the picture. The Mm -hmm. very thing people do to, in essence, solve a problem becomes the problem. Their problem-solving behavior becomes the problem. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I like to do in terms of more of the same is to ask people, um, where do you find yourself getting stuck? Um, Where do you find yourself either saying the same thing over and over again or doing the same thing over and over again? Where does your partner show up the most stubborn? Because wherever that spot is, that's where you're doing more of the same. And I really help people to take a look inward about the the very things they're doing that are actually making things worse. Um, I, you know, and I can give you an example from my own life, um, something that, you know, I was never very proud of, but there I was doing the same old thing. You know, one of my husband and I have, we've got two grown children, but when they were little, we had major disagreements about how to deal with them, especially our firstborn, you know, the, the one you kind of get to experiment with. And, uh, you know, I always thought that he was too strict and he had harsh ways of saying things. And, um, I, I was protective of, her self-esteem, and also of their relationship. So every time he engaged with her in a way that I thought was um, critical, I would intervene by softening the blow, so to speak. And guess what would happen? He would get mad at me and even madder at her, which was exactly the opposite of what I had intended. I was hoping he would back off. But he felt that I was a pushover. He was he was always upset about the fact that I got in the middle of their relationship. And so the more I did that, which I felt like I had to because it was a mother's duty, and the more it, it uh, escalated the negativity between the two of them and between him and me. And this, by the way, Neil, I'm not proud to say, went on for not just weeks, but months and years. And that's you know, I, I can't tell you how many people have come to my practice who describe similar kinds of patterns that they engage in. And the reason they persist is because typically the thing that you're doing, you feel very strongly that it's the right thing to do. Perhaps it's the only thing to do. And most certainly it's a logical thing to do. But here's the bad news. Logic doesn't always work. It took me years to figure out it was time for me to do something different. And I see my couples doing this all the time. Mm. Yeah. So how did you how did you move from seeing what you were doing to coming up with, all right, so I can't do that. So now what the hell do I do? Exactly. Well, I thought it would be a good idea if I practiced what I preached because I certainly preach all the time that the next step in this sequence um, is to, first of all, quit doing more of the same. And the next thing is to experiment, do something different. Anything different has a better chance of working than the same old thing that you're doing that is only making matters worse. And so in this case, um, I, I remember this like it was yesterday and it was a very long time ago. 
I was doing a workshop in California. We lived in the Midwest, so I was about as far away from home as I could possibly be. And I got a call from my daughter in the evening, and it was sort of an SOS call. Um, Mom, Dad's saying mean things, and he's angry. And, of course, it stirred in me those you know, the feelings that I have to, you know, intervene here in some way. So I said to her, put your father on the phone. And luckily, we had a rather large house. So it took a while for him to get there. And it gave me enough time to say to myself, Michelle, what is my goal here? What am I hoping to accomplish? And my goal was I wanted them to have a good evening together. And then the second question to myself was, is what I'm about to do or say going to bring me closer to my goal or push me further away? And if the answer was push me further away, then I had to not do it. And that was my answer. So when my husband got on the phone, he anticipated my criticizing him because that's what happens in relationships. You go on automatic pilots. So he got on, he said, hello. And I said, hi. And he says, hi. And I said, I just really wanted to say goodnight to you. <laughs> and he, he said, okay, good night. We hung up the phone. And Neil, that was like the hardest thing I had ever done. <laughs> and the next day, as I was going back home, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon back at our home. And it was about the time that my daughter would be home from school. I wanted to call her to find out how the rest of their evening went. So I called home. She didn't answer the phone. He did. He normally wasn't home at that time. And I said, what are you doing home? And he said to me, you know what? Last night, I just got to thinking about the argument that I had with our daughter. And he said, and I felt so bad about it that I left work early and I picked her up from school and I brought her flowers and we're going out to dinner. And then he said, now, do you feel better? (laughs) I said, yeah, I feel so much better. I said, do you feel better? And he goes, yeah, I feel great. The truth is, he loves our daughter as much as I love her. But every time I intervened, the only response he had was to my negativity, not to have the opportunity to look at himself in the mirror and to take stock of what he was doing. And by my removing myself from that interaction and making room in the universe for him to do some self-reflection, it had a completely different response and reaction and result. And so that really changed that whole dynamic really forever because it taught me that sometimes the worst thing I could do is be a fix-it addict. Sometimes I just have to stop myself, stay out of it, and let whatever happens unfold. And it unfolded in a really beautiful way. And that's what I teach people who come to my practice is Look at what you're doing, look at the results that you're getting, and see if it's time for you to do something different. I'll give you another short example, Neil. And I I was working with a woman who, um, she hated conflict because she grew up in a conflict-ridden home, and it really upset her to the core. And as life would have it, she married someone who was angered very easily. And there was a lot of tension in her relationship for years. And every time he would get angry, her logical response was to try to calm him down. 
Now, when you try to calm down a very angry person, they typically get very annoyed that you're saying what you're saying and you're doing what you're doing because they feel like you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so she read about quit doing more of the same. And she was determined one day that she was going to do something different. She wasn't sure what that would be, but she knew she would do something different. The opportunity came very quickly. It was a Sunday. Her husband was in the family den. He was working on a project. She was in the kitchen. All of a sudden, she hears his voice getting louder and hears him say, I can't believe that my boss wants me to do this. I wasn't at the training. I don't know what to do. And her initial instinct was to do more of the same, to rush in and try to comfort him. But instead, because she made a promise to herself, she marches into the family room and uncharacteristically, she pounds her fist on the desk and she goes, I can't believe this is happening. You weren't at that training. You were home. There's no way you're going to know what to do. There's no way you're going to be able to do this assignment. What was your boss thinking? This is so crappy. It's going to ruin our day. And it was dead silence. And her husband then said, settle down. I'll figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it's a humorous but true story. But it really points to the fact that we all get into these, as I call them, automatic pilot interactions where we don't even, look, couples often tell me they don't really need to have the arguments that they're having because they have them time and time again. They know the script. They know what they're going to say. They know what their partners are going to say. As a matter of fact, I, I tease them. I say, if one of you were sick, you could be the understudy for your partner because it's so predictable. Spontaneity is so incredibly powerful because it kicks people out of automatic pilots. It allows you to be more creative. And the best part of this, Neil, is that it almost doesn't matter what you do as long as what you're doing is something really different from what you have been doing. And then just to observe the results, really pay attention and notice if your spouse has re- responded even in a slightly different way, because then you're on to something. Yeah. And that was something you mentioned in the sixth step of taking stock that, um, that it's important to look for those small signs of change versus expecting everything to suddenly be radically different. Exactly. And, and, And this is especially true if, for example, you're someone who's trying to save your marriage um, from the depths of despair, that you're not going to go from someone saying, I love you, but I'm not in love with you and I want a divorce, to having, you know, mad, passionate sex and having great conversations and being, you know, the best friends again overnight. It's just not going to happen that way. People need to um, really train themselves to look for small signs. For example, changes in uh, your, your partner's tone, uh, a, a willingness on the part of your partner to maybe um, be in the same room with you for longer periods of time, or maybe your partner's now initiating conversation where they've been pretty mute for several weeks. Um, or maybe your partner's asking you questions where that hasn't happened for such a long time. Any sort of interest in, you know, who you are or what you're doing or a kind act like somebody bringing you a, a cup of coffee or perhaps calling you over the course of the day. Sometimes, 
even just to check in about logistical things about the kids when that hasn't been happening for a long time. So I help people to sort of scale down their expectations as they're on this marriage building uh, journey to really look for those small signs. And part of the reason it's so important to look for those baby steps forward is that when you see them, you become encouraged. And when you feel encouraged, you're more able and willing to stay the course because especially when your spouse has given you the message that, you, that they, they're out of there, um, what it requires of the, of the partner who wants to save the marriage is a great deal of patience. I say patience is not a virtue, it's a necessity, that it, it does take time and it, the, the road is one filled with hills and valleys. And so just when you feel like, you know, things are getting better, um, you'll have a setback. And if you get, allow yourself to get discouraged um, when you're in a valley and to, to resort to doing more of the same again or getting frustrated or getting angry, um, chances are you're going to get derailed. It's important to get yourself back on track after you've had a setback by simply asking yourself, what is it that I need to do today to get things back on track? Don't ask yourself, what does my spouse need to do? You need to ask yourself, what do I need to do? Yeah, and that sounds like it's part of step seven, keeping the positive changes going. Like, even when you have a setback to to focus in on what was working and um, and to revisit those things because that's how you're, you'll build momentum around the positive change. Exactly. And, you know, there's been research about how people actually make profound and lasting changes in their lives. And it's never done without setbacks. And so, um, in fact, you know, some people make a lot of progress and then they find themselves having a major setback and they think that they're back to square one. But that is not the truth. That is faulty thinking. It's just that the, as I keep saying, the road to positive lasting change um, just is paved with many ups and downs. And what I think what separates the winners from the losers in terms of um, really being able to make your relationship work in positive ways that last over time is to take personal responsibility. Don't wait for your partner to come toward you. You take personal responsibility um, for doing what you need to do to get the relationship back on track that day. Now, this, I feel like totally inspired and optimistic from your saying that because I think it puts the power back in our hands to do what needs to be done. And at the same time, I'm reminded, and you've been so generous with your time already today, but you did mention at the very beginning of our conversation, the last resort technique. So yes. I'm wondering if you can talk about um, what is the last resort technique and when would someone need to use it? I mean, I guess clearly it's the last resort. So when all else has failed, use the last resort technique. Right. And so, so mo most people know when they're there. Um, it's when they've heard those great words. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Or I've been thinking about this for a long time and I want out of this marriage 
or there's nothing that you can do that's going to make a difference. What part of I want out of this marriage are you not getting? And sometimes there is an in-house separation where they're sleeping in separate bedrooms. Sometimes there's an actual uh, physical separation to homes. Sometimes the divorce has been filed for. And and sometimes there's just two people living just two completely different separate lives. And what characterizes people who want to save the marriage at this point is most people unfortunately do the very things that make things worse. And they know that they're, they know it's not making it better. They know it's backfiring, but they feel as if they can't help themselves. For example, um, they usually understandably get very upset. Um, they cry, they beg, they plead, they reason, they debate, they get angry, they threaten, they do guilt trips, all of which push the reluctant spouse even further away. And so one of the things, you know, uh, that I have taught people Um, And by the way, um, in in addition to my having worked with so many of these folks, um, I I also have a a telephone coaching program that's based on speaking to the one person whose spouse is clearly more than halfway out the door. And um, I I also have developed a, a video program called The Last Resort Technique that spells out, you know, what I'm about to say in much clearer terms. But um, So what needs to happen is the person who wants to save the marriage has to, first of all, stop the bleeding and take a deep breath and take several steps backward. Um, That in and of itself is a major intervention because their spouse has been used to being pursued very heavily. I mean, I actually had one guy who bought, I don't know, 25 Hallmark cards to profess his love and place them strategically throughout the house in kitchen cupboards, in the refrigerator, by their nightstand. Um, she knew how he felt, but he just, he insisted on making sure that he, you know, he wanted to make sure she got the message. When that didn't work, he literally um, knew her path that she would drive to work and she rent, he rented a billboard where he professed his love for her on the billboard publicly. So, you know, needless to say, that didn't work either. It just pushed her further away. So you need to stop chasing. And it's very uh, difficult to um, tell someone to stop doing something without telling them what to do instead. You need to have a plan. Um, The first part of the plan is I like for people to, uh, and I keep referring to this idea of kicking things out of automatic pilot. Um, So I explain that, you know, what they've been doing is so predictable um, that they have been begging and pleading and crying and they need to make themselves more mysterious. And I ask them, what is something that you could do in the next week or two that would make your spouse sort of stand up and take notice because it's so different from what's been happening? And usually people say things like, if I stopped, let's say they're separated, if I stopped calling, that would be noticeable right away. If I stopped pleading my case, that would be noticeable right away. If I seemed more upbeat because I've been so depressed and so anxious um, that would be noticeable by the way, right away. And by the way, I really coach people 
as much as they can in the presence of their reluctant spouse to be as upbeat as they can possibly be. And the reason for that is this. When someone is depressed and scared and anxious, let's face it, that's not too attractive. You don't really, you're not counting the minutes until you can spend time with that person. And I always, when, when I say to people, you need to bring your best self to these interactions, they'll say to me, but how can I? I I'm feeling so bad. I'll say, look, you're feeling so bad because that's a reaction to the situation that you're in at the moment, but that's not who you really are. For example, tell me, what do you think your spouse was attracted to when you first met? And I usually hear things like, I was the life of the party, um, I'm really outgoing, I'm very funny, um, I'm successful, and I'll say, you know, freeze that image, because that's who you really are. And I'm not asking you to be someone who you're not, I'm just asking you to bring that person to the interactions that you're having. And most people feel a deeper sense of confidence after they've remembered who they really are. And so they're, they're more upbeat. They're not calling. I also suggest that they not initiate conversation. They allow their spouse to uh, sort of take more responsibility for initiating all sorts of contact, even if they're living together, to initiate the conversation. They can respond. They should respond lovingly and kindly and enthusiastically, but let their spouse take the lead. Um, those are just some examples. There, there are many more, Neil, but what tends to happen with so many of these people is that when the person who's being dumped, so to speak, stops acting like a victim, starts another piece of this very important, um, getting a life of their own, which means very often, um, being with friends, keeping themselves busy, uh, going back to church or synagogue, uh, going uh, to do exercise or meditate or take a yoga class, when they begin to focus on themselves and make themselves or help themselves feel better about who they are, so often they become much more attractive um, and less uh, sort of uh, sad seeming and, and, and their spouses take interest in them again. And one of the things that I have to teach people to do is to, if their spouses are coming around, if they're beginning to show interest, if they're calling or wanting to spend a little more time together, or maybe even being a little flirty, as hard as it is, it's important not to step back into the old roles too quickly before these changes have taken hold because so often what happens is when things just start to get a little bit better, the person who wants to save the marriage really feels that they're on safe ground and they begin talking about things like, are you noticing the changes that I'm making? Where do you think we'll be three or six months from now? Do you still love me? Um, do you want to be in this marriage? All of that, which I call relationship talk, um, drives the other person away. And so it's really important to take things slowly, even when things are turning around. Yeah, it actually reminds me a lot of um, there's a conversation that's coming on the podcast with Chris Sider of the Ex-Boyfriend Recovery Project. And so his side is completely focused on when people have been dumped, how do they get their their person back? And mm -hmm. and uh, and 
he's had, you know, hundreds of thousands of people visit his site and give data. And the most effective thing has been not having contact with your ex and, um, and working on yourself, you know, like, so it, it makes total sense. And, um, and then I also, I like what you're saying about how you want to really allow the, the energy that builds that new energy to, to take root before you start bringing things back around to the big questions. Absolutely. And, and again, um, you know, and I'm, I'm very proud of it, but I've uh, created a 90 minute uh, video program called the last resort technique, which really walks people through this, what I call counterintuitive process of getting their marriages back on track. And they can do it. I've seen it happen thousands of times. And, you know, it's, here's the other thing. Um, It doesn't always work, Neil. Sometimes one spouse really has decided that the marriage is over and there's not much that the other person can do that can make a difference. But when they take the steps that I just described, especially what we're talking about now, getting a life, focusing on yourself, um, not ruminating about what's going on, but rather creating um, and broadening out a, a much more wonderful life for yourself. Um, it's a win-win situation because feeling better about yourself is something that needs to happen whether there's a marriage or not. It'll be exactly what people need when they have to move on in their lives. In fact, people have actually said to me, uh, the ones whose marriages were not saved, that, that you know, they've said, Michelle, this didn't necessarily save my marriage, but it actually saved my life. And uh, that's a pretty big win. Yeah, I think that is really close to my own experience and and how in the end, you know, it didn't save my marriage, but I was uh, so much better and on a and on a really positive trajectory. Um, and fortunately, my ex also is on a positive trajectory in, in her life, which is great sure. for her and great for our kids and and all of that. But I I um I'm struck by how important that is all the way along to, you know, with all of these steps that we mentioned for people to really become more grounded in themselves and that they're going to be okay. Like in the, in the big picture, they're going to be okay. That hopefully that, that helps them deal with all the triggers that will be happening along the way and, and allow them to really follow through on the steps as you've outlined them. Um, and just kind of experiment and see where it goes and, and to, to rely on that um, optimism that hopefully gets them to, to actually an, a, a saved um, relationship um, or in the case of someone who's just doing this, just like a better relationship because they're, oh. they're trying to, to take their relationship out of autopilot, even if autopilot is kind of okay. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I guess the other piece to all of this is this is sort of, Um, if you don't take personal responsibility for what you can do differently in the relationship, the only alternative you have is waiting for the other person to change. And that is such a position of helplessness and dependency. What I love about thinking about relationships in this way is that when I get stuck in my own life, whether it's with my husband or my kids or my coworkers, I, instead of saying, to myself, boy, they really screwed up. I asked myself, what could I do differently? You know, what is something that might really make a difference here? And 
it allows me to be creative. It changes my, it's a positive outlook on creating, you know, positive relationships in your life. It's, it's fun to be creative as opposed to, you know, that question that you asked me, you know, why do I have to be the one to change? It's like, oh, great. I get to think of something new to do. Yeah. 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 I could see that really kind of fostering your own sense of empowerment and not being a victim in your own life. And, yeah. and also the, the play that comes with being creative and, and being curious. Like, I wonder what will happen next. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Michelle Wiener Davis, thank you so much for your time today. And I just want to mention to you listening that um, Michelle's book, The Divorce Remedy, along with outlining in greater detail, even uh, each of the seven steps that we've talked about with with examples and, and options for how to how to implement them. Um, there's also a section that deals with specific issues like dealing with infidelity or if your partner is depressed or if there's like a midlife crisis going on or um, like a collapse in your sex life. So those things are also tackled in the book. And uh, Michelle, I know you also have a new book coming out. Um, Would you like to take a moment to just chat about that briefly? Oh, sure. So um, in these intensives that I've been doing now for the last 10 years, um, here's the truth. Most of the couples who come to see me, I'd say about 85% of them are dealing with infidelity. So in my own trial and error way, I have learned so much about helping couples heal from infidelity just because it's what showed up at my doorstep. And I thought, I don't want to just be able to help the people who find their way to Boulder, Colorado. I really would like to get the word out that there are concrete steps that both spouses can take in order to move through the pain of the betrayal and to come out the other side with a relationship that is stronger and more connected than when it started. And so I wrote a book called Healing from Infidelity, um, The Divorce Busting Guide to Repairing Your Marriage After an Affair. And that will be out uh, at the end of January. And I'm really excited about it. Great. Well, we will definitely have you back on the show to talk about that topic. It's so important. Um, and and yes, it, it is clearly af- affecting so many couples who are having issues. So I'd love to have you back to chat about your book and uh, give our listeners a chance to find out more about your approaches to dealing with infidelity that way. Thank you. I really appreciate that. If you are interested in finding out more about Michelle and her work, you can visit divorcebusting.com. You can also schedule a consultation with a divorce busting coach. There's an 800 number on her website. I'll give it to you now. It's 800-664-2435. And Michelle's mentioned that she has intensives that she does and other um, videos and, and books and products that are helpful for you that are all available through her site or on Amazon. Um, And we are also going to have detailed show notes for today's episode where we will have all of those links. If you want to download the show notes, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com 
slash busting, B-U-S-T-I-N-G. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I'll send you a link to the page where you can download the show guide for this episode and all of our other episodes, of which there have now been many. Um, so, Michelle, is there any other way that you'd like people to get a hold of you if they want to find out more about working with you? I guess the only other thing beside uh, visiting my website is that if they have questions um, or feedback, I'd love to hear from them. And that's, uh, they can get a hold of me pretty simply by just writing to me at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, at divorcebusting.com. Great. Well, um, definitely we'll pass along any feedback we get here on the podcast to you. And uh, yeah, I'm very curious to hear what uh, what our listeners have to say after today's episode. There's been a lot, a lot of information, lots of gems. And, and I also appreciate your willingness to be personal and, and talk about how so many of these things have have come up for you in your in your own life. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Michelle. It's been such a pleasure. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, Neil, and it's nice to have a conversation about relationships with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.